There's a reason I chose that video, or those particular selections for the video of the day, even though it wasn't funny. Normally I choose funny clips. But today I just chose clips that I was like, I thoroughly enjoy watching this and could watch it a long time. But I selected the theme of work because of the, the message this morning. So if I were a little kid today, I would be wanting to like draw. Just so you know, like when, some of my earliest memories of being a kid in church are playing in church with a little matchbox car and getting pinched for raising it too high up. You know what I mean? The thing, the, the, this muscle right here? Or this little ear? It probably has some hearing damage from being... Anyway, but I also drew quietly during sermon, and I don't believe that's not paying attention. I believe that actually helps us pay attention way better than. If your brain is as fast as mine and people speak one-fourth as quickly as my brain can think, then I need all the help I can get. Am I the only one this way? Tell me, doodling during class is the only thing that kept me from being lost in a complete trance and all of a sudden going, what? Oh no, there's homework and I didn't understand anything. Okay. Let's start the sermon. Holy Spirit, give us grace. Give us grace. Give us grace. Amen. I'm writing a book and preaching a sermon series and the title of the book and the series is called The Soul of the artist, the soul of the artist. Sometimes people think that faith is about like answering the question, is there life after death? I actually came to faith because I was wrestling with a very different question, the same question that the book of Ecclesiastes is wrestling with, and that's this question. Is there life before death? There's got to be more than the futility of you wake, you work, you eat, you sleep, repeat, you die. The current opioid epidemic, to me, seems to be like an expression of a deeper spiritual crisis, a crisis of meaning and a purpose. When it feels like our lives are going nowhere, we're going to look for an escape. Especially young men very often feel like their lives are devoid of purpose if they don't have meaningful work. Not that I'm trying to pin the whole drug addiction problem on this one thing. Everybody has their own story. But there is, I believe, an existential crisis of purpose in our society. And I'm saying that I believe that a part of the underlying cause is that our souls are undernourished. And the reason our souls are undernourished is that we crave a sense of significance. We are meant to find through meaningful work in the world. We are made for more than to be passively entertained. We are made to be actively productive. We are made to be more than content consumers. We are made to be content creators. And unless we're making something meaningful with our lives, or or at least engaging with something that adds value to our lives, we have a deep intuition that we are wasting our lives. This is where I think thinking about death can actually help us not waste our lives. I don't want my epitaph to be, here lies Tim, he watched a lot of TV. We only live once. 
And we want to do something worthwhile in the short time that we have. That longing is universal. And it comes, I'm, this is what I'm trying to argue, is that it comes from the soul of the artist within every one of us. And that's why I titled the series, The Soul of the Artist. So you could ask the question, you could say, well, I'm not an artist, so like, who is this actually for? Some of us have a natural bent to just jump right in and make things. From an early age, no one can stop you from making things. All you, all, all you needed was to see one person do something beautiful, whether it's a musician, it could be a tradesman, it could be a pie, it doesn't matter. It could be your mom. You saw one person do something and you said, wow, I'm going to do that. And you were off to the races. And that's all it took was one witness and your soul said, I'm in, let's do this thing. Others of us need a little bit more encouragement. I'm hoping that some of the things that I say can be that encouragement. When I say the word artist, I know that if you're a musician or a painter or a poet or a writer, you probably already consider yourself an artist. And if that's you, these talks, these chapters are going to be, um, well, I hope they're going to be helpful for you. But I also believe that there are elements in this, in this theme I'm working through that will connect with literally everyone, even if you don't consider yourself an artist, because every single one of us has giftings and a calling from God. Every single one of us has the artist's soul, even if you don't consider yourself an artist. But if I had to answer the question, who is this series for, like the deepest answer to that is, it's for me. I wrote it for me. I wrote this actually several years ago because my soul was going through, I don't want to call it a crisis, but just deep questions, yearnings that I didn't understand, that I felt like they're at odds with the structures and the expectations and maybe the conventions of modern life. Or maybe at the very least, like they were at odds with the voices in my own head. And so I wrote. I wrote because I want to thrive. I want to learn how to do better what I'm on the planet to do. I listened to my soul and I went on a journey of discovery. And I hope that it's like half, if it's, as, if it's half as helpful to you as it is to me. See, when I get low, I go back and I read this document that I made called The Soul of the Artist and it, immediately the Spirit of God comes upon me. Every time. So here we go. Point number one. Meaningful work is its own reward. Or you could say meaningful art is its own reward. Meaningful work is not just paycheck work. Do you know what I mean by paycheck work? You wouldn't do it unless they paid you. Meaningful work is, just like all good art, autotelic. It has its end or its purpose in itself. It's its own reward. The goals and values from the work come from inside of you, not from external standards. They are intrinsically motivated and the work is intrinsically valuable or beautiful or meaningful to you. In other words, you would do it without the promise of money or recognition. If it gains recognition or if it gains compensation, you're like, bonus. But success in meaningful work is not measured in whether or not it's successful with popular opinion. Success in meaningful work is measured in whether you take satisfaction in it, whether you find it pleasing. You alone are the steward of your heart. No one else can tell you what you like, and no one else can tell you what you believe. 
No one else can tell you what you're supposed to be doing with your one life if it doesn't satisfy the soul within you. How other people respond can be like super thrilling or it can be deeply demoralizing. But the first rule of art or life is that it must be meaningful to the artist first. This means that if we try to live out the dreams of our parents or our friends or our heroes, it'll never work. We have to learn how to listen to our own souls. I'm not trying to suggest that our jobs, just to be, this is a side point, I'm not trying to, to suggest that our jobs have to be the primary place we derive meaning from in our lives. In fact, most of us will probably not be able to arrive at that perfect sweet spot of doing what matters to us that we also love and we get paid. That's really rare. But I do think that since we live in a free society, that we should take advantage of that freedom to get as close to that bullseye as we possibly can and to not at least try is just plain irresponsible. I feel you have a moral imperative, a moral imperative to do work that matters to you. I didn't say work that you find fun. Sometimes the thing that matters most is incredibly painful and difficult and fraught with challenges. But you have a moral imperative to do meaningful work with your one life. You're morally obligated to go after it, is what I'm trying to say. I don't know if I could say it stronger. I recently read that millennials are less interested in how much money a job pays than in how meaningful the work is. They will intern for nothing. They will work for free at a job that they believe is meaningful. That gives me a lot of hope right there. Like people will be like, oh, millennials, these kids these days, blah. I'm like, oh my word. Old people, so cynical. If we're going to play that game. I don't actually think all old people are cynical, but it just makes me want to go there when they go the other way. I like millennials. And they defined, they would rather do meaningful work than work that makes them fame or fortune. And they defined, millennials defined, meaningful work as work that makes the world a better place. Come on. There's intrinsic value in what is good, beautiful, and true. You'll probably hear me say those three words a lot. There is intrinsic value in the good. The the good, the beautiful, and the true belong to Jesus. He has the patent on them. The good, the beautiful, and the true belong to Jesus. And that is what defines meaningful work in the world. Makes the world a better place. It adds goodness, beauty, and value, and truth. I know, I know we need money to eat. I get it. We, you know, you like food? Would be the, why do I have to go to work, Mom? Well, do you like food? <laughs> you like a roof? But we need more than food and shelter in order to truly live, which is why Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need more than food. We need meaning. We need purpose. We need hope. We're designed, each of us is designed with purpose in mind. We're created 
to be creative. And if you listen to your own soul, I think you can hear it saying, I have to make, I have to create, I have to do, I have to dream, I have to paint, I have to write, build, serve, lead, fix, organize, heal, help, teach, parent, cook, design, contribute, whatever it is. I have to. I don't know if you're going to be able to make a living as an artist, but if you're an artist, you won't live unless you make. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are God's handiwork, God's poema, God's poem, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. The good works were specifically and uniquely designed for each of us. It's like Cinderella's slipper. It only fits her foot. There's a fit between the form and the function. And you need to know your form and your function. You need to know what you are here to do. God did not design us in a factory, which means that the call on our lives was not factory-made either. Each of us has God's fingerprints all over us because we're each made by hand. And we're called to live homemade lives from scratch. Not store-bought lives from a box. The little boxes of society will imprison you if you let them. So we have to swim against the current. If we order our lives to please someone else, but it is not authentic to who we are created to be, It can end so badly for us. We can actually warp our souls out of shape. The Bible tells a story of David fighting Goliath, the unlikely small young man David and the huge terrifying bully Goliath. It's the quintessential underdog story. When all the other soldiers are cowering in fear of the taunting bully, David steps forward and he says, I can't go along with this. King Saul then offers David his fancy armor because a shepherd wouldn't have expensive armor of his own, but when David tries it on, it doesn't fit. I imagine he looked like one of those goofy inflatable sumo wrestler outfits that people wear to like waddle towards each other and then bump before they finally fall down. Uh, How do I look, guys? You're going to (laughs) die. So finally David says, this isn't me. I got to do it my own way. So there he goes down to the creek to... To, to expertly find five smooth stones. Just the right size, just the right shape. Only five, and he only ended up needing one. Because David is an assassin. He's deadly with that sling. He'd been perfecting his craft in secret with no one watching but the Lord for years. And you know how the story ended, even if you've never heard the story before in your whole life. The underdog defeated the giant with nothing but his sling and his stone and his faith in God. There's a bunch of lessons in that, but I'll suggest at least this one. Some of us will never find where we fit in until we learn how we're meant to stand out.
To have integrity, we've got to stand back after all the other voices have spoken and then return to our compass. If too many creative visions or voices with different values try to steer either a project or a life, it doesn't work well. The proverb, I believe it's a Native American proverb, is true. He who hunts two rabbits goes hungry. That makes sense, right? Poor rabbits. In art and in life, we want to develop a strong enough sense of self that we know who we are, that we know where we're going, that we know what we're here to do. Otherwise, people who are going somewhere else, they will steer us to a place we're not called. To? Called to? Whatever. And the worst possible thing is that we might actually get there. I mean, they'd like that. But it wouldn't be God. If the work pleases people, wonderful. To share something that you find meaningful and then have others draw life from it, that is hugely gratifying. But pleasing people, it's not always possible. As the poet John Lydgate famously said, you can please all the people, you know it, some of the time you can please some of the people all the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. So like, what if what, if what you make provokes people and they absolutely hate it? Is it the end of the world if they hate it? No. No, in fact, you might have done nothing wrong. You might be actually right on mission. You know, I say this a lot in here, but (laughs) people rejected and killed Jesus and said, he said that the false prophets were popular and the true prophets were hated. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I'm not saying that we should view rejection as a fruit of the Spirit. I'm not saying saying that. You know, you can be mean and rejected because you stink and you're a big jerk. But we might be on the right track. I once heard a comedian say that his goal, his intention, his idea of success was to please half the crowd and offend the other half. That if everyone was happy with his performance, he felt he'd failed because his job, as he understood it, was not to entertain, but to provoke and change the way people think and live. (laughs) I don't want to go to that concert. That That guy's mean. Many things that are possible, this is a slight switching of gears, but many things that are possible are not probable. And I know that the American thing, because I'm saying follow your heart, follow your dreams, essentially, in some way here. I know that the American thing to say to young people is follow your dreams because with hard work you can achieve anything. But the truth is that it's extremely unlikely that your art or your meaningful work will be your primary source of income. If your goal is not make art, but your goal is make lots of money from art, that's foolishness. And parents would do really well to relieve their children of the dream of, I'm going to be a Twitch streamer when I grow up. Do you all know what Twitch is? You play video games in front of other people and they watch you. 
So-and-so makes millions of dollars on Twitch. I'm going to be a professional video game player for... No, you're not. No, you're not. I'm going to be a YouTuber. No, you're not. If you made it to the top 3% of YouTube channels and you had 1.6 million views per month, you'd still only barely scrape past the United States poverty line and you would bring in about $16,800 a year from ads. That is 1.6 million views a month to just barely break the poverty line. Kiddos, it's not happening. In terms of music, I've always said that some of the most incredible musicians in the whole world are actually unknown weekend warriors who work Joe jobs all week long. So then the question is, Tim, if what you're saying is true, and this might not be the way to fortune, should we keep doing it? Yeah, that's kind of the whole point of my whole talk. You have to, if you want to live. I mean, truly live. Or maybe we can ask the question, should I, should I do it even if I'm not going to be famous and rich? Well, that depends. Do you love what you do? Because if you love what you do, yes. If you're, even though your creative work might not bring enough external benefits to justify the personal cost at the surface level of feeding your ego or filling your bank account, it serves a far more important function of actually bringing you into this life worth living. Jesus actually insisted, on, when we're on the topic of fame and fortune, that the desire for human approval and love of money always work against integrity. In anything that works against integrity erodes quality of life. He actually knows how life works best. Crazy, wouldn't you think that that is logical? And this is why loving the work and staying faithful to your own inner vision or inner compass is essential. It's essential because in both art and in life or work and in life, we need so much more than almost anything else, integrity. To be a person whose parts are lined up. What we say, what we, what we believe, what we do, those match. There's a, a high price tag though to integrity. But there's also a high price tag to not integrity. <laughs> Which is higher? I'm not sure many of us are going to be willing to pay the high price of integrity unless we're in love. People who are not in love tend to complain about the cost of anything. People who are in love find a way. It's so hard. I mean, yeah. 10,000 hours before I even get my foot in the door, the skill, I don't know. People who are in love don't say such things. They're already 500 hours ahead of you. So my first point was the artist, the soul of the artist, loves the work for its own sake. And here's the second point. And this is our crescendo. Just so you know, I'm going to thoroughly enjoy telling you this next part. It's going to be pleasure from my head to my toes. Artists make cosmos out of chaos. In the beginning, Genesis 1, 1 through 5, listen to the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, I've got jails, by the way, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day, the word of the Lord. American composer Leonard Bernstein drew this insight from chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. God's creative work was done by ordering the disordered. And because of God's image in us, our innate mandate as creatives is fundamentally the same. Artists are grasping for the meaning of things that seem disordered. That's your vocation. And, and actually, you can't help it. You're already doing it. You do it all the time. Isn't that what you're doing? You're trying to understand. You're, trying, you're, you're, gross, you're, you're grasping, you're searching, you're, you're listening, you're, you're trying to understand. You're trying to find the meaning in so many different things. You're trying to put a story together. You're looking for pieces that help you make sense of the pieces that you're already holding. And you're asking, where does this go? How does this fit with that? And whether we're talking about like building a home, organizing a room, planting and harvesting crops, folding clothes, writing a poem, or helping a friend through a painful loss, or making sense of your own journey of pain, we are making cosmos out of chaos. This is what we do. This is what we must do. Creative work is so deeply embedded in the very meaning of our lives we, because we are here. This is what we are here to do. We are here to bring order out of disorder, creation out of chaos. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Read it more carefully. I was taught that God's creation was, here's a Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing. But read verse 2 more carefully. God doesn't create out of nothing. It starts with the breath of God hovering over the surface of the lifeless dark ocean. It doesn't start with nothing. It starts with raw material, disordered. And all that potential, all that would be is latent within the raw materials. But it needs a creator. So picture Genesis 1 verse 2 like this. A child gets out all the Play-Doh and sets it on the kitchen table. What are we going to build today? Or another image. Verse 2 is like a painter assembling all the colors on the palette, but they have not yet put the brush to the canvas. And then they stand back looking at an image with the eyes of their heart that will serve as the template for what's about to take shape in the material world. Or maybe a final image of what's happening in chapter 1, verse 2. A rough marble slab sits in the sculptor's studio. And she sees something in the slab that you and I can't see unless she creates cosmos out of chaos. Chaos. 
So she thinks for a long time and stares at that huge cold rock. And finally, after what seems like way forever, she steps forward and she raises the chisel and the hammer and goes to work. And I say work loosely because isn't it strange how closely the artist at work and the child at play align. So in verse 3, God says the coolest thing into the darkness. He says the first four words of the creation, and you know what they are. Let there be light. And it explodes into brilliant colors that I imagine caused the bystanders, the witnesses, to shield their eyes and pull back. It's the greatest fireworks display of all time. And the child and the painter and the sculptor's hands and clothes are all now splattered with Play-Doh and paint and dust as all four of our artists stand back and survey the work with a detailed eye. And as the dust settles, God stands back and takes a long look at what he's made and then he nods and the scriptures express his assessment, his artist's assessment as this. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the Play-Doh goes back in the box, or sorry, the containers, until tomorrow's work begins anew. Later, at the apex of the story, God forms us out of the dust, and he breathes his breath into us, and then he places us in a small corner of the garden and essentially says, do here in this small space what I've just done in this outer space. Bring order from disorder. Shape, mold, cultivate, create. Be fruitful and multiply. Cover the earth and make art everywhere until the reality inside you finds its full expression around you. Heaven is inside you. Make the outside world match the inside world. Make the visible kingdom match the invisible kingdom. On earth, as in heaven. This is what we do. Because this is who we are. Go ahead and stand.